Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know, my series. I'm Amal Sarva, founder of No-Tell, where I interview the interesting people I bump into around the world. And today, I have an amazing person, scientist, entrepreneur, public servant, Safi Bacall, who I literally bumped into getting a snack at a conference not so long ago when he told me about Loon Shots, the book I figured he'd be writing for years before it ever hit the shelves. Hi, Safi. Hey, glad to be here. Uh, I didn't believe you when you told me you were working on that book. <laughs> and now you do, I hope. Now you do. Oh my God, it came in the mail. I had pre-ordered it, I think, the moment uh, I stepped away from you that day or shortly afterwards. And um, yeah, I guess I got it on, on the very first day of availability, which is pretty awesome. I had forgotten all about it, and there it was. And then there's an email from you. Just launched this week, and I cannot believe your cover blurbs and stuff. They're amazing. You have a really good crew that you assembled for that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it was very, um, so, uh, very kind of them. Yeah, I mean, how do you know these people? I mean, I guess that's your sort of life story that gets you to this point, right? I mean, is it right? Scientist, entrepreneur, public servant, and now uh, a giver back to the world? Thanks. Yeah, no, I um, cross paths with, uh, I guess, mostly through my time in academic science, crossed paths with a bunch of notable scientists who were intrigued to find a very different and original way to apply an area of science, so the science of emergence, science of phase transitions, um, in a way that people don't really apply it today, has actually never been done before, which is apply it to the behavior of groups inside teams and companies. And so I think a bunch of scientists found that very intriguing. Um, and then businessmen found it very intriguing for the same reason that there's a lot of typical business books out there about culture, 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 but very few about structure. Lead like a soldier, I mean, lead like a basketball coach, lead like a whatever. Uh, exactly. The, or, the genre uh, is populated with such things. But you're saying lead like a scientist? <laughs> yeah, it's a, It's an idea of rather than the sort of squishy psychology of what can you do, what might explain people's behaviors, trying to think more about a science of designing more innovative teams and companies. And I, I think when I first started as a CEO and I was in my early 30s, I was looking for the magic bullet, like probably everybody is, about what does it take to create great teams and companies. And I just did get frustrated with all the sort of squishy psychology stuff and was looking for some harder underlying core. And then over time through various, you know, partly through my own company, partly through work I did with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors, started realizing that people were missing a big part of what it takes to design really effective teams. And that's understand structure rather than culture. Hmm. Oh, well, take me to, to, let's start with your your academic background. I had the privilege recently of talking with Stephen Wolfram, and we, we basically pursued a theme a lot like what you've just outlined. A guy who was a hardcore physicist working on a new subdomain related, related to you know, computational reducibility and experimental mathematics, and uh, decides to build a company to to make the thing that he felt was needed by his discipline uh, and had to learn how to do that. I mean, first he was at uh, Thinking Machines, a legendary artificial intelligence company in the 80s, and then he uh, then he was building Mathematica, and, and then that company has become a legendary business. But he's the CEO. He's like the nerdy scientist that actually runs a thousand-person company all around the world. Uh, and I and I wonder what are your your roots in academia and whether it's those ideas that you're talking about when when, when yeah you I think emergence Stephen by coincidence I've actually known for you know almost close to forty years when since I was a really little kid because we overlapped 
I grew up, I, my dad was at the Institute of, for Advanced Studies in Princeton, and Stephen was there when he was uh, either a young, yeah, senior postdoc, a senior, um, I don't think, he wasn't faculty there yet. So he was still a very young guy. That was before Mathematica um, it, you know, became what it is today. But I, I would say he's the uh, exception rather than the rule of um, most scientists really struggle to um, run an, a team or an organization because it's two very different, doing science and running a team or a company are two very different things. And he's done a very good job of that. Um, yeah. Well, and it sounds like, you know, when he was sort of, you know, not in the lab exactly, but with his pencil uh, working at Feynman's knee, uh, he wasn't running big organizations for sure. And the subject matter he was working on wasn't related to, to people at all. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, aspects of, I guess, you know, cosmology and, and, and some of the other great mysteries of the universe. But your work is, you think, uh, it's related. Yeah, and under, essentially, I mean, for a couple hundred years, we've known that human beings respond to incentives. And people have used that to understand the economics of financial markets, the economic, the economics of uh, nations, of households. And firm. But no one has really looked at incentives inside teams and companies, you know, to understand what is if there is something underlying the patterns of behavior that we see in United teams and companies that we might be able to explain with how are we designing our teams and companies, how are we rewarding people. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. If you reward people inside a organization based on rank, which is actually very common. Most of the focus is, well, you're an associate, you're a vice president, you're a senior vice president, executive vice president, and so on. Then what kind of culture do you motivate? You motivate politics. Everybody's focusing on getting ahead on career and advancement. And one of the ways you do that is stabbing your neighbor in the back, stabbing your colleagues, shooting down their ideas, their loon shots, those small crazy ideas that are easy to dismiss or ridicule, but turn out to be very important because you want to get ahead, go up the ladder. On the other hand, if you reward people based on the six uniting around those ideas, the success of those projects, because those projects always fail in the beginning, they hit a lot of stumbles. So if that's how you reward people, then you'll get a more innovative organization. So what you have it underneath the patterns of behavior, the patterns of behavior are the political culture or an innovative culture, but underneath that is how you compensate people, how you reward people, what is your design of your organization. Mm -hmm. So that's the structure underneath the culture. And the reason that becomes so interesting is that once you can and I just gave you a very simple example. There are many more levers that you can work out. But once you understand that, it becomes a lot easier to drive change, to achieve some of the things you want to achieve. For example, changing culture is very difficult. It's like pushing a battleship. But changing structure, changing how you design your systems, your incentives, your processes, that can be a lot easier, like turning a rudder. Mm -hmm. And the place where I started with a lot of this stuff um, is, is kind of a weird observation, which is that you would read these stories of great leaders talking about being interviewed about what their success was, and they would often talk about, well, it's you know due to the culture, culture, culture. And... Then a couple of weeks later, the same companies would be in the toilet. And it <laughs> yeah. would just make me wonder. Every the culture time changed in two weeks? Yeah. I mean, what happened? Like they had this great culture, was responsible for this incredible rise, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you read this all the time, whether it was Nokia, you know, back in the 90s and 2000s, 
going from nothing to dominating the world of smartphones. And then, you know, very shortly after just becoming almost an irrelevant player. But they kept contributing. Yeah. I mean, they really went from three, their value went from $300 billion to eventually they had to sell their mobile business for, I think it was like around $12 billion. So they lost you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars. And they just kept focusing on, oh, you know, we, we built a great culture. That's why we're so successful. But how did that change? It's very hard to imagine that that sort of thing could change overnight. Well, but that reminds me. skeptical of, of culture then. Is that what you're saying? That it's not, it's not because of culture? It's not. That they succeeded. Exactly. That it, it's, why do you get these sudden changes if it's just culture? It's hard to imagine that something that the CEO, if it's the same CEO and the same people, why do they suddenly change? Mm-hmm. And what it reminded me of was uh, a glass of water. So if you imagine a glass of water, you stick your finger in, you can swirl it all around, except as you lower the temperature just below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it suddenly changes. You have the molecules go from sloshing around to completely rigid. Mm-hmm. But they're the exact they same molecules. Mm-hmm. And they're no, there's no CEO molecule with a bullhorn sitting there saying, you know, I think it's 33 degrees, everybody loosen up. Oh, no, then, <laughs> no, no, wait a minute. Now it's 31 degrees, everybody get really rigid. There is no CEO molecule. There are no videos on how to be a, you know, how to have <laughs> a great nice innovative tip. culture. <laughs> You know, there's no, let's be, let's all be, you know, loosey goosey today. So what, you know, why do they change? And that has to do okay. with yeah. what I call structure. It's the interactions between those molecules are two forces. And as you lower temperature, those, the relative strengths of those two forces, one wants to make them run around and one wants to make them lock rigidly into place. The relative strength between those two forces changes until right at 32 Fahrenheit, you get this break-even point, and the system suddenly flips. And so that's so what I show. So this is you, Safi, rocking your physics on people. <laughs> well, you can. It helps understand a puzzle about why groups suddenly change, especially as they grow larger. So you can imagine hmm. if you organize people into a group you all of a sudden create two incentives. One of them is a stake in the outcome of the project, and the other is perks of rank, of going up the corporate ladder. Now, when you're really small, let's say you're just two people, well, everybody's got a 50-50 stake in rank, and it kind of doesn't matter what title you give each other. Now, let's say you are 10 people. Well, now everybody has a 10% stake. It's, it is quite a bit smaller. Now you need a team captain. Um, so there is some advantage to going up, but you're still pretty small. Everybody's pretty focused on the outcome, you know, whether you're developing a new cancer drug or you've got a new app you're building or you're producing a small movie. If it's successful, everybody's going to be a huge winner or a millionaire. And if it's failure, everybody's going to be unemployed. So your stake and outcome is still pretty large. But now imagine you're 20,000 people. You know, you have, your stake and outcome is tiny, but they're like, you know, less than 1%. But if you get promoted, if you go from associate to VP or VP to SVP, you get a bump in salary of 30%. So all of a sudden something is switched. Now perks of rank become more important. Mm-hmm. There's no CEO there that determines that, but there's a sudden shift in which of these things matter, the underlying Mm -hmm. incentive. And so that's uh, what I found really interesting and helpful is that not only is that uh, helpful for understanding why teams or groups will change, why you start to see the appearance of politics, but when you write down, it's more than an analogy, you can write down sort of a straightforward understanding of what are the incentives in a typical I company. Think so I, yeah. I mean, you got yourself to a formula. Didn't I you? did. So when you, if you've managed a business, you know, you compensate people with two things, cash and equity. Essentially, those are the two forces. Cash is 
you know, typically your base salary and equity is your stake in the outcome. And so you can write down, this is what I compensate people with. And you can see as you grow or you make other adjustments in the systems or the structure, how that changes and how that determines at what size companies will suddenly shift from embracing wild new ideas to rejecting them. And then you learn that when you solve that equation and you see, you know, N equals, this is the size at which the company will shift based on how we're compensating people. You see that's a function of these kind of four control parameters, these four parameters that are sort of the equivalent of temperature. Hmm. And that gives you kind of new insights for how you can adjust structure to design more innovative teams and companies. So N equals E times S squared divided by F divided by G. That's right. N equals E That's squared F divided by G. That's the kind of equation E squared that you, F. E times S squared times F divided uh, by G. Uh, there are these four control parameters, and they, that gives you a sense. Those are the things that you can adjust. Those are the elements of structure that you can adjust. Uh, so take, take me through these. So N is the number. N is the, the size. Number, the size, okay. And so for example, equal, if you plugged in T, mm -hmm. N equals, yeah. So if you plugged in typical values for those four parameters, you might get N, the size at which politics starts to dominate over the urge to, the incentives to innovate. You get, okay. you find yeah, that that number is around, it. you find that that yeah, number no, can be yeah around, you know, 150 or so, somewhere between 100 and uh -huh. 200. Uh -huh. So what so you want to do is you want to make, number. yeah, it's a, it's a different way of, uh, it is a, I would say, more plausible explanation of why you start to see politics appear above a certain number. Dunbar now, in my experience yeah. in companies, yeah. uh, this feels right. When you get past 100 and certainly past 200, you start having some of the bureaucratic behaviors of larger institutions. Right. Uh, yeah, and Robin Dunbar is, I mean, famous for a lot of things, but that Dunbar number is really well known, the number after which uh, people don't know names anymore, which I guess is around right. 200, if I recall right. correctly, right? That's right. Yeah, um, that's Dunbar. And that's an observational result, right? Like, walk around a bunch of different types of societies and and and... and in a wide in a wide variety of situations, you know, both remote small groups and other larger groups, and then uh, and then there's your math here, and it's funny because because you're doing math as a physicist might uh, approaching a problem uh, in a way from it's like basic mechanics where right? you're applying some Newtonian reasoning to this to see what makes it work, but it is a, a well-traveled area for economists. Um, that have considered this matter, and and even if you know where ec economists verge into being philosophers, right? I mean, your basic notion of culture sits upon the structure, is a Marxist idea. Um, well, I'm definitely anything. Having been a public company CEO and worked <laughs> on trading floors and investment banks, I don't. Think well, I'm not calling you a socialist. I'm not calling you a socialist, but what I, are you saying, Emma? What are you saying? Speaking as an academic <laughs> philosopher to an academic physicist, trying to understand people as if they're heavenly bodies, um, the, the 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 theorist who I think made that those ideas famous in in the first instance, at least in Western philosophy, is Marx, and a big part of his argument is that the culture we see is the one that the economic logic of the society drives. That's his argument. And there is a whole flow out of Marx, which is just about culture and the culture industry and why do movies work and how do mass cultures get created and all that, which is subtended by the, the economics that underlies it. And what's interesting is, is, is your formula and, and the sort of feeling of truth, right? So E, S, F, and G, we got to define what those things are. And maybe we can even use some no-tell no -tell numbers from my company because it's getting kind of big now. We're several hundred people and we're past your your estimate, right? So let's see, if we're going to find out what N is, and E is the equity fraction that the average right. so employee owns. E is the equity owns, fraction. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you take your average person until you have to average over everybody. What is the average percentage of a person's comp 
And do you include the like some of the heavier owners? Like if, if I'm the founder and I own a lot, so me and 299 other people, what do we own in total and divide by all no, the people? No, you actually want to go to the person at the bottom because I'm not, you know, you want to find, you want to ask the question, where does politics start to appear? Okay. And so you want to find the person who has the smallest amount of oh, equity. Oh, I see. So it's not the average, like the weighted average, but rather a typical person, what is their equity fraction? Yeah. So and imagine that you have layers. So you wanna, size, we're, we're at like basis points is what they are. Right. So, you, so people you are joining the company in their own. Yeah. Right. So these numbers will be different at each. Imagine you have a hierarchy. You know, VP, SP, oh, okay. You know, okay. So these oh, numbers right. will so the next be, one, F, is span of control. So it's like a person at whatever level you choose, what's their percentage of ownership? times their span of control. They, do, they direct, do they manage seven people or a group of 50 people? And is that what you mean by span of control or do you mean direct? Do you mean total department or direct reports? Direct reports. Okay, so yeah, if I take some mid-level person or a higher level manager, some vice president kind of person, they might own somewhere like half percent to one percent of the company. They might have seven direct reports. So we're going to do half a percent times seven. That gets well, by equity points. fraction, I mean what percent? No, I don't mean what percentage of the company do they own? I mean, mm -hmm. what percentage of their comp every year ah, is tied okay. to equity versus what percentage okay. is their base salary? So what I mean by that is if their base salary is 100000 and, mm -hmm. uh, you know... They have a grant on paper is, that's worth 100000 then it's 50-50 or something like that. Right. So if... Okay. Exactly. So if okay. their base salary is 100000 and the the amount of bonus at risk depending on how their project does is 10,000 mm -hmm. then you know they have uh, their equity fraction is 1 out of 11 roughly you know around 9%. But okay. if so they have 100,000 in band of control squared and then what's the F? F is a ratio of two variables it's a ratio of how much do promotions and I'll define it more precisely but F is a ratio of two variables which is how much do promotions depend on politics versus how much do they depend on merit? So here's what I mean by that. I mean, let's call it project skill fit. So how good you, what is the fit between an average person's skill set and their uh, project by which they're assigned, the project that they're assigned to? So here's, it's a little. It's an, essentially an economic marginal rate of return analysis, but and so that sounds a little fancy. So let me explain it in uh, or, or try to break it down a little more simply for a, uh, a radio. Which is, imagine it's four o'clock and you're working on a project, and you have one. Let's say you work nine to five, and you have one more hour left on your day. What F measures is how much incremental value do you create by spending that hour working on your project? Let's say you're making a coffee machine or something. So how much do you improve the value of your product by spending that last hour of the day on your work versus how much do you improve the likelihood of promotion if you spend that extra hour on politicking? Uh -huh. So, the, if you if you see where I'm going with that, it's essentially trying. It's a measure for each individual person. What is the return of their investment in time in work versus in politics? You see what I mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the work one might be easier to tangibly describe. You know, how much more complete is the coffee machine? How many total hours are required? But how do you tangibly describe the behavior of politicking and its measurable results? It's is politicking just the being way nice it's to of, The way it's defined is, uh, it, and a, that one is obviously hard to ask people, although everybody knows it. Like if you go around with different companies, you and I have both done this sort of thing, people will say, this is a very political culture. This is a very political company. And others will mm -hmm. say, it's really not very political at all. And, and this is what they mean. They mean, if I spend an hour lobbying my boss and schmoozing my boss, is it really, what is the incremental likelihood that I will improve my ability that I get promoted? And a company where it's very low, I, I used to work at a management consulting firm called McKinsey, 
Yeah, and I was there too. Were you at McKinsey? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few years later. The yeah. one of the things they do, and actually Google does this very similar. They do a very good job. It's sort of a surprising. Um, it's one of the interesting takeaways, which is you remove managers from the decision to promote. Mm-hmm. So what they do at McKinsey when it comes time for a partner to get promoted is he does, there isn't a boss that decides. The people he's working with don't decide. He or she are working with don't decide. They fly in someone who's specifically chosen for not knowing anybody there, in the, either in the group or that person or that person's boss. It's a bit like the academic tenure process. A little bit, exactly. So they, and at Google, it's pretty similar. And they, uh, it's always sort of a shock to managers, new managers that they hire there. The manager has, you know, six people reporting to him or her. And the manager's like, well, I, you know, this guy's ready for promotion. And they tell him, yeah, that's not your decision. It's like, what? That person works for me. Of course I get to. Nope, you're not. And it seems very shocking and very surprising, but what's the impact of that? The impact of that is that in companies where the you know the manager or the vice president is is responsible for who else gets promoted in his group, all the associates are just going to be lobbying him all year round, subtly or not, and they're going to be subtly or not stabbing their other colleagues in the back because this is the one guy making the decision. If you remove that person from the decision, then you take politics out of the out of the equation. The return on investment of an associate's time in lobbying his or her boss is very low. Some of the stuff that you were describing as politicking, though, I have to I have to ask. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't they they be described these behaviors as simply collaborating and creating? interconnections between teams and departments. I, I think that the, the image is, is very crisp that you give of sort of trying to capture your manager and um, that that one, sure. But but sometimes when people say a company is political uh, and, and they always mean it in a negative way, uh, they are describing, though, behaviors of, of, of departmental members traveling across the organization, building links and alliances and special uh, rapport and trust and information flow. I mean, isn't that what how great teams work? They don't just work heads down, headphones on, producing more uh, coffee. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the first meaning, which is lobbying your boss for trying to get promoted. So when your boss mm-hmm. is in charge of the decision of promoting you, which is sort of the normal course, then you're going to spend a lot of time and energy lobbying him. Now, what happens at, let's say, a McKinsey or a Google, to the second thing that you mentioned about collaborating well, is you do want to get a better base salary. You do want to get a better bonus. But rather than having your boss decide that who you're working with and your team is working with all year round, you fly, you get somebody independent to come in and interview your colleagues, your clients, your customers, and your boss. And that independent evaluator makes a decision. So that ends up having exactly the effects that you want. It takes away the negative politics of, you know, stabbing people in the back. (laughs) Well, it seems obviously right. It seems like obviously the right way to hear you describe it. And, uh, but it reinforced what you were saying about the, yeah. yeah, and, and, And what you were, Saying about the collaborating is absolutely right. I want to emphasize, and you know, in McKinsey and in Google and in some of these better companies, you do see that remarkable behavior. And I remember having been there, and maybe you there as well. When you know that your your decision and your bonus is going to be determined in an impartial sense through interviewing your colleagues, how are you going yeah. to treat them? You're going to treat them yeah. really damn well. Yeah, it's an I remember having that, been at Sep- so sorely when I left. I missed it so sorely. You could call anyone and that, in the world you're right. at any time. And That's so funny that I'm ta- I don't think I've talked yeah. to somebody who's been at McKinsey a long time, but it, you're absolutely right. When we were at McKinsey, you know, McKinsey has, um, has some pluses and minuses, but one thing is it's very collaborative and collegial. And part of that is that's the culture on the surface, but underlying that is the structure. The structure is it's not your boss making a decision. Someone, a third-party person interviews your colleagues about you 
and that third party person decides your fate. So you're going to behave pretty well. Yeah. So help me calculate F. So F is a ratio of? It's a ratio of if I'm an employee, what's my mark? What's, what's my, yeah. what's my rate? I'm, I'm tired. I've worked seven hours. I'm work making my coffee machine. Should I spend my last hour of my day lobbying my boss? Is that a good use of my time? Or should I keep doing good project work? Like at McKinsey, lobbying your boss is yeah, pointless. Yeah, waste of time. Your boss changes all the time too, right? That's another... Your like boss changes all the thing. time. And it, you know, at several of these other companies where they've started to do this and they say your boss will have no... He'll be one of the you know many people being interviewed about you. Your your investment in politics, the rate of return on that is very low. So project, so that so pro, so it's so like a number out of one. Like what, it's a number. I, I you know, really so you could say at an, at an average company that may be one. Where all of your time should be spent politicking. Well, sorry, the ratio between. You're sort of right on the fence between spend that last hour on politics versus spend that last hour on your coffee machine. Okay. Let's so say if it's in right balance, on, then it's one. Yeah. If it's in balance. Now, if you, because most people don't think about it. Most managers or CEOs don't think about it and they don't do these, you know, to have a third party person conduct interviews as opposed to your boss is an investment. You need to build a third-party group that can do that. You need to invest the time to do that. And, most and as you get that number down below one, and it's better to do the work rather than to lobby your boss, as the number gets below right. one, trending towards zero, it can be very powerful, it sounds like. even It can be very, very powerful. If you're taking, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you take your boss out of the promotion decisions, it can have a very powerful effect because people just start saying, well, I'm not going to spend my time doing politics. I'm going to focus on yeah. collaborating with yeah. my colleagues. So these first three drivers, and we're going to square the span of control, but the first one, the equity fraction, if, if most of your comps from equity, great. It lets the company get a lot bigger before, um, before politics uh, governs your le level. Span of control, yeah. we're going to square it. So I guess yeah. the, the more span of control an individual has, you're saying that that'll let us have uh, less politics for that person. That person won't be political because they have so much power. You're squaring that number. They manage seven well, so people. There, well, two things happen. Nine. So mm -hmm. the two things happen. The way I think about it is, let's say you have a fixed number of, let's say you have a thousand employees. If your span of control is is two, then you have seven layers, roughly mm -hmm. speaking. So, but if your span of control is 10, then you just have two layers underneath the CEO. Uh, so the reason that the span of control matters a lot is it just decreases the number of opportunities for promotion. So oh, imagine... Okay, so span of control is a clue about the total layers. Really, that's what you're getting at. But average span of control in the organization tells you how high it's stacked, essentially. Exactly. The promotion it, reward. Yeah, just imagine yourself, if you were at working, if you were an associate working in a company with you know 20 layers and you only everybody yeah, I should spend a lot of time trying to climb rather than you're going to be work. spending a lot of time trying to climb and less time focused on your project now yeah. imagine and back to those halcyon days in McKinsey where every it's a ton of little piles it's not one big giant global pyramid you can advance directly from analyst to associate and basically a partner and all you've done is climbed over yeah know, five and I remember there around. was one guy in the, the who was the head of engineering at Google had 180 direct reports Yes. Yeah, now imagine flat, you're in that hundred. Yeah. Imagine you're in a, a group with 180. It's not really a company. It's like a club. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it was yeah. like. And so when it's very yeah. flat, what happens is people self-organize around whatever project is interesting because you need people to help you. And mm -hmm. the manager doesn't have time to micromanage. So if you're running an innovation group or an engineer, and that the we haven't touched on that there are two different kinds of groups that you want with two two structures that are almost exactly the opposite. In one case, let's get to that in one sec, Sophie. I want to get the last letter out there for our diligent. The last letter is G. Their formula is G. A, the last yeah. letter is G, which is the rate at which your compensation increases up the hierarchy. So here's what I mean by that: if you get promoted. 
if when you get promoted, you get a bump of 30%, then G is 30%. If you get right, a bump you're gonna of be 100%. Motivated. Right. So consider two companies, one where G is 200%. Let's say you're at a company, you're a middle manager, but if you get promoted, your salary will triple. What are you going to spend all your time trying to engineer? Getting promoted. Yeah. yeah. And making sure nobody else does or none of your competitors do. On the other yes. hand, if promotions earn you 1% bump in salary and all the rest is in equity, then are you yeah. going to spend any time giving a shit where you are in the hierarchy? No, who cares? It does nothing. Yeah, totally. So how many layers, the difference in comp between those layers, how much of comp in general comes from equity? And I guess across layers, equity compensation changes too. Perhaps you intend that in the way you're thinking of G, right? That that is true. So the uh, you know, in, to for that particular model to keep it simple, you assume that equity yeah. grows the same as base salary, so that you mm -hmm. to not introduce too many variables. Yeah, and then and then the reviewing system that lets people advance is, I guess, the fourth major factor here. And the way you put it together, I wonder how long you tinkered with it to get it to to land at a number that made sense. It is. Um, uh, have you experimentally confirmed your finding here, Safi? <laughs> there are actually uh, some business school professors have run some studies and have shown, um, for example, that last variable that we talked about, G. So they call that, um, there's, a, there's a fancy term that they use in business schools. I think it's called like a wage, wage disparity. That's what it is. Yes, yes. Wage disparity. So when G is very large, that's high wage disparity. And when G is very small, that's low disparity. More mm -hmm. And they have uh, done a correlation study. And again, obviously, causation is not correlation. But they have found that the companies with greater wage disparity have higher turnover rates and poorer performance and lower scores on employee motivation. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds. There are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Notel has the feeling of truth. I mean, it certainly is supported by intuition, and I guess my handful of examples that I know well. And, you know, it was so nice of, about listening to you go through the way you devise this thing. It, it does give you a sense for how to, to work the machine, like where to put your hand on the levers. And I guess you were you were just coming up and drawing for us like a big aha on, on two ways to animate uh, teams in companies. And I suppose you meant the kind of run the business teams versus reinvent the business teams. Uh, yeah, so there's yeah? Um, exactly. So there are two pieces to this question. Part one is, let's say I have a group of people and I want to encourage them to be more innovative and take more risk. And then we do the kinds of things that we were just talking about. These are the elements of structure that can drive a more innovative culture. And this is what now, startups look like. I mean, it's just descriptively accurate of what younger companies, how they're set up. Not small businesses, but startups, those that have high ambitions. When they go from one headcount to one or 200 headcounts, they often resemble very much uh, your idealized model here. Right. Now, you're a very successful entrepreneur, and any successful entrepreneur knows that 
you have to do two things when you run a business. One is you have to come up with some interesting new ideas, interesting ways to beat the com competition. Two, you have to get to turn those ideas into products that you can deliver consistently on time, on budget, on spec to customers. So one is, let's say, radical innovation, and the other is, oh, let me start. And the other is execution. Uh, my names and for those are chaos and control. Chaos and control, perfect. One group is the artists, one group is the soldiers. And you need, so underlying the stuff that I told you before, which is sort of the more technical aspects of how you design a good environment for artists, is stepping up one level, maybe an even more important point, which is the following. Underlying all this stuff is the analogy, is the mapping of this group interactions to a group of uh, a, a complex system and understanding that you have a phase. A phase is what's called in science an emergent behavior. It's a property of the collective. And the underlying theme of all this stuff is that innovating well is a collective behavior. It's an emergent behavior. It means that you can't analyze just one person or one molecule and explain the whole... No geniuses. Weird, exactly. The whole weird property of the collective. So the problem and the challenge for any entrepreneur, you, me, anybody, or especially larger companies as well, a system can't be in two phases at the same time. Um, you can't be water and ice simultaneously, with one exception, right on the edge of a phase transition. Then a system can be, if you bring a bathtub to 32 Fahrenheit, you get blocks of ice and pools of liquid, and they coexist in harmony with neither side dominating the other, and they can live that way forever. So that's the mental model, the mental mindset you want for running a large company and it has three implications. One, you need to separate your artists and soldiers. And I'll come back to what that means for a small mall company. It's obvious for a large company, but you need to separate them because they speak different languages. The words and systems and incentives are completely different. They're sometimes opposite. Here's an example of what I mean. The English word risk. It's one word. It's <laughs> four a letters. Thing or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Now, to an artist, if you say, to an artist, risk is a good thing. If you say, I see a lot of risk in your work, the artist is going to smile. If you say, yeah, they were bold. If you, you know, if you say, I think you've really taken all the risk out of your work, that's an incredible insult. There's no risk in your work. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an incredible insult. Now, Imagine talking to a soldier. You know, let's say you are, to an artist, you want to try 10 different things and throw away the eight bad ones and then keep the one or two good ones. That's a lot of, that's risk. That's how you succeed. Now, to a soldier, if you say you've really taken the risk out of here, that's a great compliment. You're going onto a battlefield. You really reduced the risk. That's awesome. If you're manufacturing a plane, You've really reduced the risk. That's exactly what you want to do. If you're making planes, you don't want to launch 10 into the sky and sit back and say, let's just see which eight crash and let's keep the two good ones. So yes, risk, one word, means exactly the opposite for those two things. So you need to separate them. Otherwise, you'd be making no sense. You need to separate them. That's rule number one. Rule number two is you need to manage the transfer, not the technology. You need to, hmm. because the failure point in innovation is almost never the supply of new ideas. Ideas, as you know, are a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. Most of the time in most companies, it's about the inability to transfer those ideas between the two groups. You get the artists, because they speak different languages and they value different things and their incentives are entirely different. Artists, Think they have this beautiful new baby they give it to the soldier soldiers like it's ugly 
You know, it doesn't work. You know, that understands the old thing that worked, the old guns, the old ships, understands and doesn't want to change. Also, the soldiers, let's say you're selling something, you're compensated on selling. Well, I had this old product. It's been working great. I understand it. I don't need to invest any of my time to learn something new. I already know it works. I know how to sell it. I'm paid on commission. So great. I'm just going to sell it. And my customer knows I've seen it. this all the time. I'm just going to keep selling it. And then the artists are like, here's a great new product. And the soldier's like, uh-huh. Well, when I take it in front of my customer, 50-50 chance it doesn't work. There's a bug. He's going to be pissed off. He's going to be angry at me. I'm going to have to go back to you. It's going to eat up weeks of my time, and I'm not going to sell it. And, and so I want to hit my number. I have something that already works. Let me just do that thing. That's the soldier. And so the artist is very frustrated because he's like, this is much better. And the soldier's mm -hmm. like, I'm just trying to earn my commission. I don't really give a shit. So the failure, what the best managers do is they manage the transfer. They think about how do they get those baby ideas out to the soldier and into the field, despite that initial resistance. How do you address the underlying structural issues? And well, I mean, more as I'm listening to you laying this out, I, I mean, I, I presume you will supply the answer very soon. <laughs> well, the, the point, you want to separate them, you want to manage the transfer, which really means if you are a leader, and the way I always think about it, because I can only remember things visually. So I remember these three rules as an ice cube, that's create phase separation, separate your blocks of ice from your pools of liquid. The second one, I think, is as a garden hoe. You want to lead as a gardener, not as a Moses. Your job as a leader is to nurture the balance between these two things, between these two groups of people and between the ideas. You want to get the little baby ideas out of the nursery, where it's managed by artists, but, and into the field, but not too early, where they'll be crushed, and not too late. Mm -hmm. And then... Even more importantly, you want to get the feedback back because nothing works right the first time, as you know. And if you take a product initially and you launch it into the field and customers aren't buying it, you'll lose all momentum and that will be the end of the product. But if you can get the soldiers to capture the very valuable feedback of what exactly wasn't working and why people aren't using it and what tiny little tweak, what might make it better and then bring it back into the lab. Usually they're not paid for that. So they don't do it and the product dies. But if you can figure out a way to incentivize them, bring it back to the artists in the lab, they can tweak the idea. And once you get that cycle going, then you have a shot. So you want to lead like a gardener, not a Moses. Moses stands on the top, just commands people, this is the technology. Everybody follow me. You want to be managing the balance, the touch and balance between these two groups delicately Maybe. rather than be a Moses. So that's the second one. Number three is a heart. And that might be the most important one, especially today with all this sort of cultural stuff about the great here in our society of lionizing the genius hero. And that is the really great leaders have learned to love their artists and soldiers equally. So much of the, I'll give you actually an example. A friend of mine at a magazine, I was putting out a magazine, she's a senior editor there, putting out a magazine every 30 days, ton of work. And she complains, complained to me, she said, uh, especially right after reading this article, she said, you know, our senior management, they just fall in love with whoever's squeaking the loudest about some innovative new toy that month. They just fall in love with a shiny penny and they ignore the 95% of us who are getting out a magazine every single month. And that's demotivating. So most people grow up one or the other. They rise through the artist rank or they rise through the soldier rank and they tend to like their own kind. And by doing so, they demotivate the other. And that makes it very hard to maintain balance. So a, a truly great leader has learned, and there are a bunch of examples of that that I, I give in uh, Wound Shots, has learned 
to love both of those groups equally, make them both feel equally appreciated and equally motivated. So those are my, when I think about it, those are the, I have that visual mnemonic in my head, the ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. Safi, the book is so beautifully written. It is full of characters and stories uh, and just captivating. I'm I'm working my way through it now, and I just had to admire it and just turn all the pages once before sitting down to more carefully read it. Because um, for a guy that's worked in in science and and built a company and 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 worked for the White House, I mean, you seem to have turned on a dime and created uh, what I think is a will be a, a really impactful book. I wonder if you think of the book itself and the ideas in the book as a loon shot too and where you are in the cycle of taking a bunch of hard-won wisdom and having them reach uh, a wide range of people so they can use these ideas. Because that's what I'm uh, trying to do, too. It's part of why I'm interviewing you now. It's what In the Know is about, in a way, of uh, trying to figure out how to make things spread. And I wonder if your loon shot is a loon shot. It is. You know, loon shot is these uh, ideas that everybody says they're crazy and will never work and get rejected for years and eventually turned out to be important. And in the, in the case of my book, you were absolutely right. Publisher, I remember in the beginning, publishers like, yeah, physics and business, that that never works. Oh, and you want to throw in history? <laughs> like, forget that. That's a problem. And I remember thinking, really, it, it doesn't work? Like, actually, could you give me an example of any book that did that? I don't know if any books <laughs> that have tried that. That's so funny you say that it never works because I can't think of one that's tried. But uh, where there was a, a, someone who was a credible academic scientist who also happened to have been a public company CEO for, you know, a decade. So, um, yeah, it was a loon shot. And a lot of people said, yeah, there's just no way. Uh, and on the uh, uh, and thank you for the kind words on uh, the writing. It is. It is kind of funny. I had to spend a, a couple of people have asked me on, about that because I don't write like an act. I write like, like a telling stories because you know the rise and fall of Pan Am, how the Allies won World War II. You'll you'll read about why England ended up dominating the world, why modern science was born in Western Europe rather than China, Islam, or India, which had been far more advanced for a thousand years. And it's all a series of stories and characters connected by the idea. And people ask me, like, you know, physicists don't write like that. So the uh, uh, answer was I spent two years unlearning how to write <laughs> from an academic style or a business style. And I think business hmm. school books are often just as guilty of writing in a pretty formulaic, not very uh, appealing way. And my goal with this book was to help teams, people, and even companies nurture those crazy ideas, the ones that are really important. And it, because I recognize that there's so much focus of culture and that is really missing some much easier and more important ways to innovate and create new products better. So my goal was to get it spread as widely as possible. So I spent a while thinking and practicing how could I tell this in a way that's the most engaging well the storytelling is fabulous this is the big week I think it's a great publisher the volume looks good you got yourselves a bunch of you got yourself a bunch of great uh, you know whatever they're called those cover quotes and stuff um, and you're off and what what next what's the plan where's it gonna where are you gonna when is this a Netflix series uh, actually, I'm, uh, we're in discussions for creating a docu series, a loon shot, <laughs> about uh, a series of verticals. Uh, one of my and, friends is. But is it, yeah. so that's your thought? Like you want to you want to pursue this theme as uh, a force in culture, uh, find other platforms and outlets for this this theme, and I guess reach as many people as you reached uh, r running your company or or uh, advising the, the White House on science? Uh, well, for me, I, you know, there are other people running with the ball on that. I don't think I would have the bandwidth to do that on my own. There are other people running with the ball on um, turning it into a docuseries and moonshots in different verticals. And I, 
think that can make a big difference. You know, loon shots in climate change, loon shots in energy, loon shots in food. Uh, and that ha could have a really interesting effect. And ultimately, what I'd love to see, what the nice feedback that's been really meaningful for me is that it's inspired, especially young people who have these crazy ideas and big ambitions and they're told, no, no, no. And they read this and they're like, wait, all these people that I thought were geniuses, they struggled like me and they were told their ideas were stupid, just like me, not for a day or a week, but often for years. And so um, if it can inspire young people, that would be very meaningful and powerful for me. If it, it is inspiring. Help, that's. And, and one of those people gonna, is going to, is going to have the breakthroughs that we'll, we'll all be admiring in, in, in time to come. Yeah. That, that, the Thanks. satisfaction of that would be enormous. So I, I want to just pursue one last theme with you for a minute, um, and that's the idea of progress. As I have been thinking and writing and, and teaching on uh, innovation and startups a bit over the last few years, um, you know, I started a bunch of companies, and at a certain point uh, I had the opportunity to sort of reflect a bit and um, I teach at Columbia the last few years, and uh, this idea has gotten into my mind, um, and it comes actually from uh, a historian, uh, coincidentally, I guess, from, from Columbia, the, the idea of progress, Nisbet, and um, it's a new idea. I didn't know. It's about oh. 500 years old, progress, okay. sort of new on the scene. It starts with Copernicus, roughly, uh, yeah. a bunch of different simultaneous innovations in the early days of the Renaissance, I guess, um, where uh, old systems might be challenged by observation and new ideas, where um, money might be put to work to make more money, not simply lost, as you know, children divide inherited wealth, where technology might improve the productivity of resources, um, and you know, fears as late as the 19th century that population might outrun us uh, started turning around and the pace of change uh, has been accelerating and accelerating. And I think we live this last 40 years in a distinct era where the tribe around innovation or, you know, in some ways the Silicon Valley tribe um, has found a set of ideas for, I guess, what you call transfer more than fundamental technology. Uh, and, and that playbook, which there are harmonics in what you say with the work of many of the, of the sort of core writers and thinkers and practitioners of the Silicon Valley tribe about how do you find an opportunity to change, apply a product against it, develop it, scale it, have it reach lots of people. Um, and those are ideas that range across, um, you know, understanding the, the sweep of technology and science and where it's going, what people want, how do you speak to them, communicate with them, how do you make something fast enough, change it enough, organizational stuff, people stuff, so many things. There's, there's sort of an emerging playbook, and I think we're in a a chapter in that history of change that is new but continuous with a longer arc. And as a scientist, and for me as a philosopher, I guess we might look at this and think there is a lot in common between the creators of um, new and powerful businesses these days and uh, the creators of the, you know, whatever, the steam engine or even the Royal Society or all the way back to Galileo, Copernicus, and Kepler, uh, finding the truth and using it to change the world. And I, I wonder if you ever think of, of your own work as situated in that bigger, longer sweep uh, and, and think of your contribution here as a scientific contribution over and above uh, business contribution. Um, I hope so. I mean, so, you know, we talked about uh, how it can help managers and leaders. I think, you know, one thing that's just been fun for me as a scientist is I... Uh, went to look at has anyone else thought about group behavior in this way it, ultimately it's understanding incentives and thinking about how that can drive behavior which is ultimately economics and it's a different application of economics inside the economics inside organizations or groups or anytime you form organize people into a group with a mission so in and of itself, it's a new way to think about the behavior of groups that's different than what people in economics have been doing. And so that's a subfield of economics. But to the extent that it helps in science, I think one thing that I found very interesting is the 20th century 
and certainly in physics and thinking about fundamental laws of nature has been about the science of the very small, what's happening inside an atom or a proton or neutron or quark, gluon, or the science mm-hmm. of the very large, what's happening between the trillions of galaxies in the universe. But what I just talked about, these ideas, these kind of new ways of thinking about collective properties, that's really about what's happening in a glass of water. That's at the middle level of understanding what happens when you bring many parts together and organize it into a whole and understanding that the science of the whole may be very different than the science of the parts. You really can't understand why water is fluid just by analyzing individual molecules of water. And the interesting thing is that all liquids behave in very, in generally speaking, the same way. They all follow the same equations of fluid dynamics, more or less, and all solids, more or less, behave the same way, independent of the details of their parts. And that is... And so it could be true that all happy families are happy in the same way, to remember well, the Tolstoy That's line. still a family that is uh, in a large... A family is still a small number, three people, four people, five people. But you could say... <laughs> all happy companies all, are happy in the same All way. happy companies have achieved a balance, those three things. They've separated their artists and their soldiers. They've managed, et cetera. So yeah, yeah, there are collective properties that are true independent of the details of the parts. And that's called the science of emergence. And so what we've been talking about is how to apply the science of emergence to the mysteries of innovation. And so that's one of the things I'm excited about is how else can the science of emergence help us? Amazing. Thank you so much, Safi. Thanks for having me on, Emil. It was tons of fun to talk to you.